very, very interesting parak with some very special qualities to it that, um, yeah, we really enjoy. Okay, so um, I think I'll just begin with the screen share. And we'll begin. Okay, so we always like to start with this particular Nusach, which is the, um, the paragraphing Nusach. And I don't agree with that today. <laughs> I, would, I would divide up the parak differently because the first, they make the first part, the first part is kind of introductory, but you see it's, it's not such a long parak. It's 21 psukim. And basically the, from Pasuk Aleph until Pasuk Yud is really one story. And Pasuk Aleph to Gimel that they make a separate, you see they're following the paragraph in here with the Samachs and the Pays, but they're not completely stopping there. So I don't know how they do that. But basically what I would say is, there's one section, the first 10 Pesukim, which is the story of focusing on Shmuel and a prophecy. And then from uh, verse uh, 11 to verse 18 is his interaction uh, after, uh, it's after the prophecy itself, and the aftermath, and then a sort of um, closing, last three psukim. That's how I would divide it up. Now, just to recap from last week, can everybody hear me? That's first of all. Yeah, okay. Last week, we set up a very strange kind of opposition between Shmuel, whose star is rising, certainly spiritually, and the sons of Eli, the, the genetic sons of Eli, who are going downhill, unfortunately, spiritually. And we had this kind of counterpoint where we're talking about Shmuel is serving God, the sons of Ailey are sinning. Shmuel is serving God, the sons of Ailey doing worse. Shmuel is serving God, and the sons of Ailey going downhill. It's a very, very uh, sad kind of situation, but that's actually what's happening. Now, in Paragimel, there's also a sort of opposition, but here it's between Shmuel himself and Ailey. So let's take a look inside. Kind of a very special parak. Very special. Basikala Bahanar Shmuel Mishareti Tashem with me Eli. Udvar Hashem Hayayakar by Amim Haheim, Ain Hazon Nifratz. This is our introduction to a new story and a little bit of a, a different discussion. But this expression we've heard before, and Shmuel, the youth, is serving Hashem right, before Ailey. So what does that mean? The interesting thing is that we, we really have just seen this again and again in the previous chapter, you know, uh, 
Let's look at the beginning of Right. And right in the beginning, so what is the difference between this uh, previous chapter that he was serving Hashem in the face of Elia Cohen and Parak Gimel where it says, right, before Eli. What does that mean? So the Malvim says, The Malvim makes an interesting statement here. The Malvim says, one second, it's one here. The Malvim says that he is beginning to pull ahead. He is before Eli. His level of Kedusha is taking over and becoming higher than Eli's. And now we have this discussion. The word of God was yakar. Now yakar, Rashi says, manua, held back. Today in modern Hebrew, yakar is precious or rare. And I think that it works here also. The word of God was rare. In those days, now chazon is a general expression for vision seeing, prophecy, and it's not parutz. Lefrot is to break out, to break, right? When you have the famous Chabad Farazta, going out in all different directions. So in a certain sense, prophecy is held back. Ein chazon nefratz, prophecy is not spread out. Now here, right? Um, Ramitsuda says it's as if Nevua was fenced in and not able to come out. And the Malbum has a beautiful discussion here, not to go into it inside, but it says prophecy is like water. If you hold water back in a dam sort of situation, the water is going to look for a little hole. Anyone who's had any kind of plumbing issues or leaks in their house will understand. One little crack of water and boom, out it comes in every direction. So the water is held back in the same sense prophecy is held back. And this makes sense because we've gone through the whole Sefer Shoftim. We've seen the spiritual deterioration of the Jewish nation. We've seen a uh, distance between Jews and Hashem, right? And then when we have a great tzaddik who's a Kohen Gadol and a Shofar, Eli, who, who might, who might, who might have been able to forge the Kesher again, his sons are corrupt and it's and it doesn't and it doesn't work. It's short circuiting. So it's sort of getting that angle of prophecy is not not coming through. Okay, Pasik Bet. Vayehiba Yomahu. And it was on that day, Eli was resting in his place, and his eyes had become darker. He could not see. Okay, so we're, we talked last time about Eli becoming very old, and we defined very old as over 80. 
because that's how the mission decides. 70 is Zikna and 80 is Gvuras, much older. So which puts, if we're going in that kind of count, that put, would put uh, Ailey in, in his 80s and Shmuel at something like 20, 21. And we have this picture that Ailey is resting in his place and he's going blind. What does it mean by Yehiba Yom Hahu? And it was on that day. So previously we've had, you know, by Amimahem, it was on that day. So Rashi says, right? And this seems to be across the board. Most of the Farsham understand it this way, but we have a little bit of an issue. What is that day? What just happened? So if we go back to chapter two, in chapter two, Parakbet, we saw that, um, a man of God comes to Ailey. This is the end of Perak Bet. And the man of God, we, we've been told, is Elkanah. And he says to him that because his sons have been sinning, they're going to get this terrible punishment, a curse in the house of Ailey. We broke it down into three separate curses. Curse number one, they were going to lose the uh, position of, of high priest, of Kohen Gadol. Curse number two, they're not going to be able to leave the kahuna, but they're going to remain in positions as kohanim so that they will feel the sting of not being in the great position anymore. And number three, that all the people in the house are going to die young. So this has been a kind of hor horror story, uh, a horrible curse. And that day, the man of God has come to Ailey. Anyway, so if that's the day, that's the day that Ailey's resting and he's going, his eyes are getting darker. We have a little bit of a problem here because after that terrible prophecy, right? Let's go back, right? Anyone who's left from your house, this is the last passing in Pyrrhic Bet. He's going to have to come on to the Cohen at that time and beg him for a job so that he can have some bread. What was the PS to that horrific prophecy? It's kind of horrible. No reaction. There's no reaction. That's just it. And then the Nabi comes along and starts telling us that prophecy is rare and Shmuel is becoming greater and greater. And on that day, Eli was, Eli was resting in his place and he's losing his eyesight. Right? On that day, Pasek Gimel. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Shmuel was resting in the Hechal of Hashem, where there was the Ark of God. So now we have an issue. And in this particular edition, it's hard to see. Let's see if it's in the, this one. You could see it. I have so many editions of it here. Okay, this one you could see. If you look at Pasuk Gimel in this edition, you see the trump. 
Now, the girls who've been through my class know that the, the strongest stop in a Pasuk, besides the end of the Pasuk, is called an etnacht, a little wishbone. And under the word shohev in Pasuk Gimel is an etnachta. Okay, so we'll go back to our colorful presentation there. But now you understand. Now we have a very big problem. This is a strange situation, okay? What are we being told here, right? On that day, right, she was getting greater, greater, but there wasn't any prophecy that was, uh, you know, uh, happening in those times. And on that day, Eli was resting in his place and he was going blind. And the Lamb of God had not yet gone out. And Shmuel was resting in the Heichel Hashem, Hashem Aron Elkim. He was resting in the Temple of God where the Aron Elkim is. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What are we saying? Shmuel was resting in the Heichel Hashem where the Aron Elkim is? What? How is it possible for someone to be resting in the Hei Hashem where the Aronolakim is? Okay, now, the, the Gemara, let's see, I'm pretty sure it's this one. I have a few Gemaras open, so forgive me if I don't get the right one right away. Here. Here, this is the Gemara in Kedushin. And the Thibinel Kim Terifem, Shmuel Shafem Hei Hashem. Nobody's allowed to sit in the in the Mishkan or in the Beit HaMikdash except a member of the dynasty of David. Allowed to sit, but certainly who could be lying down and where where the Aronal Kim is now? Where is the Aronal Kim? The Aronal Kim is in the Kodesh Kodeshim. So the Mishkan is not as great a structure as the Beit HaMikdash. Excuse me. However, the Kodesh HaKodeshim is still the Kodesh HaKodeshim. And only the Kohen God goes in there on Yom Kippur, that's it, once a year. So that's why I pointed out to you that there is an Etnachta. So how do we understand this? The lamp of God had not yet gone out. So let's understand, what does that mean? The, the lamp of God in the Mishkan would light from uh, the beginning of the night until the beginning of the morning. So it, we're basically putting this into a place of night, dark night. If the lamp of God is not out yet, it's not. It's the middle of the night, which is the time of prophecy. And Shmuel Shochei, we saw that there's an etnachta, there's a full stop here, and Shmuel was resting. In the Ark of God, I mean, in the Temple of God, where the Ark of God was, and Rashi connects it immediately to Pasuk Dalit, and Hashem called Shmuel and he said, here I am. <clears throat> so Rashi says, okay, Shmuel shochebim komo be'ezrat ha'levim, where Levim sleep, because he was a levi. Right, Shmuel Shachay Bezrat Hashem and Pasuk Dalit, bekol yatsa, kol yatsa mehechal Hashem mi Beit Kodesh Kadoshim shakara Shmuel, and a voice came out of the Kodesh Kadoshim where the Aron of God is, 
the voice came out and called out Shmuel. So from Mikra Elyon Uchubale Rosha Mikra Tachton Zeusha Amar Katuv, your aim Hashem Bekolone Flaot. Okay, a very, very beautiful thing is happening here. Eliyaya Kohen Bishome Rifnim. Ushmul Haya Levi Bishoche Bibachutz. Bekafatz Hakol Derech Elishmul Bivasechetamit. Now, I have this here. Yeah. You could see it in this. This is the Zucker edition, so it's it's even nicer with the with the dots and everything. The voice came out of a Hechel Hashem from the Kodesh Kodeshim. I called Shmuel, and that is connected to the previous pasuk. the The end of the previous pasuk is connected to this pasuk, even though there's a paragraphing there. This is what Chazal say, and this is the. You know, we have Tehillim Chavtet. To Helen Chavtet, we say, uh, you say on Shabbos, Kol Hashem Alamayim, Kol Hashem Zer, Kelechavot Hirim, the Kol Hashem, the Kol Hashem, the Kol Hashem. And here we have this Pasuk from Eo, that Kol Hashem does wonders. <coughs> so, really, what is Rashi saying? He's saying, right, Yareim Kel Bekolonifla, oh, God thunders with his voice. Wonderful things. Ailey was a Kohen. He was resting, he was guarding inside where the Kohenim could be. And Shmuel was outside, but the voice of God jumped over Ailey to Shmuel. <coughs> okay, I'll just go back to the text and let's understand this. <clears throat> we have a very strange thing going on here. We have to try to figure it out. The voice of Hashem is emanating from the ark and it's calling Shmuel. Now, <clears throat> the Abarbanel says, and the other Mepharshim similarly, but he, he goes into great detail, says everything here in Pasuk Aleph and Bet is information to help us understand the story that's coming. Because, right, there hasn't been any prophecy for a while. The Ishalokim that comes to Eli, which is Elkanah, according to Chazal, that's a very rare occurrence. And he gives Eli this prophecy and Eli doesn't react to it, right? But in those days, Eli was resting in his place. Where was Eli's place? Eli's place was wherever the Kohanim were allowed to. He found himself some sort of uh, resting place within the confines of the Mishkan area. The Mishkan was not a large structure like the Beis Hamikdash, but there was a place where Cohen could be. And where was Shmuel? Shmuel, as a levy, was in the next outer corridor. But then we're told that Eli is going blind. The Ne'er Lokim Teramifen, it's dark. It's dark. And Shmuel is resting, full stop. In the place, in the Mishkan of Hashem, where the Ark of God was, the voice called to Shmuel. From there, the voice said, and he said, Hineni, here I am. <clears throat> so, 
really want to show you this. Um, the Malbim says, why, why is it put in such a strange way? Because if you read this in a, on a surface and you're not looking at the trop, then it would sound like Shmuel is resting. He's taking a nap where the ark is, which is outrageous. Who would do such a thing, right? And the Malbim says, wants us to understand, right? That his whole mind, his all of his spiritual powers were focused on the Kodesh Kadashim. And that is where he was, right? But, right? Uh, now, the, it's set up in such a way that we have to see that Shmuel is in this very, very elevated spiritual state. Okay. Let's go through the story and then we'll come back and try to understand there. Pasakei. So he hears a voice calling Shmuel, and he says, here I am, before he gets up, here I am. And then he comes, runs to Eli, runs to Eli, he says, here I am, because he called me. And he says, I, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. Now, this is, could be many, many things. He, why does he run? Why does he run? Okay, go back to our information at the beginning. Because Ailey is going blind. And it's dark. And maybe Ailey needs something and he's calling him. And the voice that he hears sounds like Ailey. So he says, here I am. And he runs and he says, here I am. Right? And Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. But Yosef Hashem crow owed Shmuel. Shem calls him again. But Yokam Shmuel, now notice here, something's changed, right? Before he jumped up, he said he nanny, and then he ran. Here he doesn't say he nanny, and he doesn't run. He gets up. But Yokam Shmuel. He's not running because it's starting to be a little strange. I heard a voice. Ellie said it wasn't him. And now I'm hearing it again. Here I am. Because he called me. I didn't call you. Now, Ellie adds the bini, which is an expression of endearment. It's like my son. Go back to sleep. Why does he add that expression? Because clearly something is going on. Clearly we have a situation that's disturbing, right? Maybe Ailey thinks he's having a dream, maybe. But the second time it happens, and, and you know, Shmuel is, is, is you know, his, his devoted surrogate son, and he's not playing games and he's coming and he's like, it's okay, my son, go, go back to sleep, right? <clears throat> and now we get the explanation. And Shmuel, now the word terem, Rashi explains is adayin lo. In other words, we don't say terem is not before because before 
would need would be like a conditional phrase and we would need like like before this then that this is a statement Shmuel did not know Hashem Shmuel did not have a revelation of God's word yet so I'm going to kind of play around why are there two languages here and um, you know the, the Rambam says one way and everyone else says Pashtus is that he didn't know Hashem in a uh, intellectual way. No one had explained to him how connection to Hashem or how prophecy works. And uh, he never actually experienced it before. And the beautiful, magical thing about this Perek is we're getting to see Shmuel getting his first prophecy and how it looks and how it feels, because we also don't know that. We also never had this revelation. And whoa, what's happening? He hears a voice and he thinks it's a human voice. He thinks it's Ailey. And notice, what does Ailey hear? Nothing. Ailey's not hearing anything. And in fact, in fact, the voice is coming from where Ailey should be hearing it. In other words, it's jumping over Ailey and coming to Shmuel. So that Shmuel's experiencing the voice and, and Ailey isn't, which is really a miraculous way that God uses his voice. Like I said in Talem 29, all those amazing things that God does with his voice. He's just talking to Shmuel and Ailey doesn't hear. Plus it by Yosef Hashem crow Shmuel Bashlishit. And Hashem continued to call Shmuel a third time. By Yakam, by Yelechel Eli, by Yomer, Hinani And again, you get the sense of a much slower reaction. He gets up, he goes to Eli, and he says, Here I am, because you called me. Shmuel has no idea what's going on, but Eli understands now. He understands that Hashem is calling the youth. Now, what do we understand that Eli understands it? We see that Eli has experienced Nebuah because now Eli says, oh, this is a voice that's directed to one individual and no one else hears it. This is that voice that's coming at Shmuel and it must be Hashem. Hashem is speaking to him. And pay attention to the fact that Hashem is giving Shmuel revelation in a certain way that Eli knows that Shmuel is getting the revelation and he's not getting it. In other words, Hashem could just speak to Shmuel and leave Eli out of the picture. You remember, and there's a lot of Mepharshim, I'm not going to go into it now, but a lot of Mepharshim compare this revelation of Shmuel's with Moshe at the burning bush. It's just Moshe and the bush and God, right? So it could have been like that here also. In other words, Hashem says, here I am, right? But in this construction, Eli knows exactly what's happening he's not part of it. He's just part of it in the sense that Shmuel thinks it's him. 
פסק ט. ויאמר אלי לשמואל, לך שכב. Go back to sleep, go lie down. Shchav could be sleeping, resting, or having relations. So really, he's just telling him to go lie down. It's probably impossible for Shmuel to actually sleep, even after the first calling, because each time it's just Shchav, he's not sleeping. Vahaya, and now he begins to teach him. Im if he calls you again, Amarta, this is how you answer. Daber Hashem, ki Speak, God, because your servant is hearing. And can you imagine Shmuel's feelings? Eli saying to him, you know, I didn't call you. It seems as if God is calling you. And this is how you answer. And Shmuel goes back and he lies in his place. Can you imagine the, the emotion of Shmuel thinking now God is speaking to him? Hashem, and he stands over him. Shmuel, Shmuel. Hashem comes and stands near him, which is an amazing, amazing level. And he calls like he did before. Shmuel, Shmuel, twice. Notice, Eli said to say, Daber Hashem. But Shmuel has to do that. Perhaps he, here Rashi says, He's still not sure enough to say, speak God, your servant is listening. So he says, speak, your servant is listening. Okay, before we get to the content of the Nebuah, there's a lot of things to unpack here. And uh, it's, it's quite a, a special story. The first thing I want to show you here okay, is a little-known medrash that I had, had to take the zucker to, to get it for you. Great is modesty, our first really important lesson. Um, this is what Shmuel's greatness. The, the message is coming to him three times he thought it was Eli. He's getting disturbed and shook up and woken from his sleep. Three times, right? Right? How many of us would react this way and say, oof, right? The classic Israeli, oof, again, right? And lose patience each time. Shmuel says, I'm here. Did you call me? He doesn't lose patience and he doesn't uh, get annoyed. And this is the greatness of his humility. Right? And he says, if he hadn't done that, he might have missed out on this tremendous nevuah. There's a few other things here. Oh dear, here we go. Uh, okay. Um, you know what? I have a lot of really beautiful Madrashan for you here. Okay. Here we go. 
Okay, let's let's go back here because I want I want you to see what's happening here. On a very shot level, this story is telling us you can be very practical here. Shmuel is about to get revelation. Revelation is rare. We, then we can understand why Ailey doesn't recognize it, why Shmuel doesn't recognize it. Shmuel's never experienced it before, and Ailey doesn't think it's very uh, likely. And then you could say, well, right, Ailey is blind, and therefore Shmuel thinks Ailey needs him because he's blind, right? And then he runs to hear him this way. And the lamp of God didn't go out. That is the um, the darkness. This is little light and it's dark and Shmuel is resting and the voice goes on. However, the, the Medrash, the Medrash here, and this is, Okay. Yamar Mar. Shemait Rabbi Akiba no Lad Rabbi. Shemait Rabbi no Lad Rabbi Yehuda. Shemait Rabbi Yehuda no Lad Rava. Shemait Rava no Lad Rav Ashi. No Lamdecha. Lamedcha. Sheein Sadik Niftam in Olam Ba'ad Shenivrat Sadik Moto. No generation is left without leadership, without righteous leadership. Shenemar. Zara Hashemesh Bahashemesh. Well, it says a Kohelet, which is always an interesting Pasuk to think about, right? The sun rises, right? And the sun sets. Now, in Judaism, what comes first, sunrise or sunset? We would say sunset comes first because that's when the midnight starts, right? We, we begin the day in the evening. So it should say the sun sets and the sun rises. But the Chazal say, no. The sun rises on one tzaddik before the sun of the next tzaddik sets. How does that work? Gives you examples, right? And here it says, Before the sun of Eli goes out, sets, the sun of Shmuel is risen. Right. We see, and this is a principle in Judaism that we always have to bear in mind. When, for example, if you think about it, whenever there was a, a tragedy or a, a destruction in Jewish history, the seeds of the revival are in place before the destruction happens, right? If you think about the the destruction of Torah Jewry in World War II. Before that happened, there were great gedolim who had been settled in Israel, in America, in other places where Torah would have a rebirth. They were in place before the destruction happened. And in the similar sense, we have before Rabbi Kiba, when um, when Rabbi Kiba died, Rebbe was born. If we look back at our story, right. And if we understand the whole section as describing Torah leadership, Torah spirituality, Torah greatness, Shmuel was serving Hashem. He was pulling ahead of Eli in greatness, right? Revelation 
had not come out yet, right? Somehow, Ailey hadn't been able to make that happen. And it was on that day, the day of this great event, Ailey was resting in place. Now, Rizal Salandra says either one goes up or one goes down. No one rests in place. If you're resting in place, you're going down. We must always go up, right? That's what the Rabbi Sarah Salam said, beautiful teaching for us to think about. Life is a ladder. You're either going up or you're going down. You can't stay in one place. Try to go up. But Ailey is in his place and his eyes begin to darken and he can't see. His spiritual eyes are darkening. He's losing his greatness. He's losing his spiritual power. He doesn't see anymore. And the Chazal say that people with wicked sons, like that, that's when they go blind. There's a spiritual blindness here, as well as a physical blindness. It's all very metaphorical. But he's still in place. He's the lamp of God. And he hasn't gone out yet. But Shmuel is resting. Shmuel's coming, ready, getting ready. Shmuel's getting ready to take his place in the temple of God where the Ark of Hashem is. And Shmuel, Hashem calls Shmuel and says, here I am. And Eli is witness to this sort of changing of the guard, right? Eli knows Shmuel's getting the prophecy, not me. And this is sort of tragic because his Genetic sons are such a great disappointment. And his surrogate son is just going higher and higher and becoming greater and greater. So we have this beautiful, um, uh, what shall I say, this beautiful metaphor of this. So the Bible says everything is to tell us right, why this is happening, why Eli doesn't expect Nebuah, why Shmuel doesn't expect Nebuah, why Shmuel runs to Ailey while he thinks that he might need him, and so on. Very, very beautiful story. Let me just see. There was. Oh, okay. I just want to make sure. There were a lot of Midrashim I wanted to show you. Okay. All right, so let's go to this next section. And this is not so much uh, so fun because we're now going to go to the context, content of the Nebuah, which is kind of rough. Hashem says, Shmuel, I'm going to do something in Israel that everyone who hears it, his ears will ring. Now, Shem doesn't specify what that is. But we have similar references in Malachim and Yirmiyahu, which are really um, telling of great, great destruction coming up. Everyone's ears will ring because it's such bad, bad um, uh, news. Pasekud bet. By Yom Hahu. On the day when that bad thing happens, the catastrophe that's coming, on that day, I will fulfill what I have spoken to Eli, everything that I said about his household from the beginning to the end. And 
Rashi explains it. He says, that day my edict will begin, right? And I said that his two sons will die on the same day. And from then on, I will make this prophecy come true one after another. Horrible. In other words, a lot of the prophecy that we talked about in Perak Beth that's going to happen to the house of Ailey is going to happen after Ailey's death. But Hashem is saying, tell him that this is going to be a sign that it's going to begin the curse on the house of Ailey. And with that event, I will be telling him, I am judging his house forever. Because for the sin that he knew, he knew that they, they were cursing themselves, his sons, and he didn't um, darken them. The same word that's used, right, back in telling us about Ailey's eyes, his eyes became dark. So he didn't darken them. Now, what's that mean? This is a very, very important passage. First of all, Mikhail Lahem is what we call Tikkun Sofer. Tikkun Sofer doesn't mean that somebody came along and amended the text that was God-given. That means that the text is originally put in a euphemistic sense because it's just not respectful to say they were cursing God, right? But that's the sense of it, like God forbid, right? And it says they were cursing themselves because you can't do that. And they weren't doing that either. Blasphemy was not one of their sins, but because... We have the root here of klala, of kal. They were treating God lightly. And he didn't stop them. And here we have a very big um, muster has scale, right? We said at the end of chapter two, Eli gets this zinger of a prophecy about terrible, terrible things. And he doesn't do anything. He doesn't do anything. Now, if you recall, he does chastise the sons in Peregrine. When he hears the particularly evil rumor about the women, he says, don't, don't do it, guys. Not, not nice. Don't like do this stuff. Like, all this stuff I'm hearing about you is not nice. And they don't like pay attention to him because his God is so angry at them. But really, he had the power to put a stop to it by taking them all out of their positions of power. And he doesn't do that. It's too little, it's too late. He doesn't take action. As a matter of fact, why did the Kohanim take over the, the, the leadership, the spiritual leadership in this sense from the Bechor? You're supposed to be the eldest of each family that was supposed to do it. It was given over to Kohanim and Levium because it says in, right, that um, the tribe of Levi didn't recognize it and play favorites. They punished the people who needed punishment. But here, Ailey plays favorites, and he doesn't castlize his children. You didn't do anything about it. And don't forget, after Elkanah gives him that prophecy, there's still no action. There's something very passive about Ailey. He doesn't think it can be fixed. And he says a little bit, he doesn't do anything. Therefore, Hashem says, he swears to the house of Eli, if there will be a kapara for the sin of the house of Eli in Zebach and Mincha forever. 
and sacrifice forever. And this is like, whoa, poor Shmuel. Poor Shmuel, I think about the, the awfulness of this particular prophecy. The first time he speaks to God and it's prophecy of doom for his teacher and mentor who he loves so much, his surrogate father, Ailey. Very big shocker. And this Pusik is so harsh, so harsh. First of all, God's swearing. What does it mean when God swears, right? It means that this is never going to change, right? And if you have a situation, if you remember the dreams of Paro, I mean, the, the, he has the dream about the cows and dreams about the, the, the grain. And Yosef interpreting the dream says, the fact that you had the dream twice says that God is definitely doing this thing and he's going to hurry and do this. So now the fact that Eli gets twice the prophecies of doom means this is not going to be taken away. This is not going to be changed, right? And we have this question, and Mitsuda says here, which means, it's important to understand this because it's so awful sounding and we have to try to figure out where's a loophole here. How can it be that a Kaddish Baruch who says, there's no kapara ever. There's no kapara forever. We have to understand that because we, we are told always of the power of tshuva. Remember, <laughs> I remember meeting a Japanese kiyoet many, many years ago. And it was fascinating to me, you know, really with a terrible accent, like everything. And she explained to me that she grew up in the Shinto religion, the Shinto. She says, in Shinto, if you make a mistake, harakiri, and she makes this horrible, just harakiri, you have to kill yourself if you make a mistake. And I'm like, oh. She said, then I, she met a Chabad who told her about Judaism and how you could do tshuva. And she followed him to Israel and became Jewish. You can really do tshuva? You can fix a mistake? You can say you're sorry and try again? She was blown away by that and she became Jewish because of it. It was like a fascinating story. So how can it be that God is saying you'll never, ever have kapara? And the Mepharshim HaMadayik here, the Chazal HaMadayik, and they say, sacrifice will never work for you. Because in those days, if you did a sin, you brought a chatos, you brought an asham, you brought your sacrifice, you said, I'm very sorry, and that was what did it. But the idea of in you can't take a prosecuting attorney and say, okay, now you're going to defend me. The sacrifices are going to come forward and say, the house of Ailey treated us as garbage, as their own private, you know, uh, cafeteria. And they're not going to be able to defend you. But the Gemara says, right? Amar Rabbah, B'zevach uva mincha, one second, go back. Menayin, okay. From where do we have, uh, we learn that if there's a vow for a certain decree that will never be changed from this particular pasuk that I'm swearing to the house of Eli that they will never have a kapara. Amorava. Amorava. 
אביי אמר, זבח ומנחה אינו מתכפר, אבל מתכפר בתורה במילוס חסק. רבא ואביי מתבית אלי כתוב, רבא דעסק בתורה חיה ארבעים שנים, אביי דעסק בתורה במילוס חסק חיה שיטים שנים. A very, very beautiful teaching from the Gemara and Kedushin. I'm sorry, Rosh Hashanah. And that is, Rav and Abaya were descendants of the house of Eli. And they understood that sacrifice doesn't work. But if you learn Torah, if you learn Torah, it will help. And so Rabba learned Torah and he lived 40 years. Most of the house of Eli died at 18. And Abaya said, Torah and Chesed, and he lived to 60. And there's another very beautiful medrash here. Uh, here, where is it? Okay, I'm not finding it. Shucks. Okay, I'll just read it to you. Okay. This is from the Medrash Rabbah in Bracious. Avram Zaken Baba Yamim. Avram was old. Old age is the crown of glory, and it's found on the way of Tzaka. Rabbi Meir went to Mamla, leaving a loose translation. Rabbi Meir went to Mamla. He said he saw that everyone had black hair. What does that mean if everyone has black hair? They're young, no old folks. And he said to them, Tomar, could you be from the house of Eli that everybody dies young? It was so known. Rabbi Abai is a thousand years later, this horrific curse went down through the generation, it was known that these people had to do extra Torah and chesed, right, in order to overcome the curse of their house. And they said to Rabbi Meir, please pray for us. Yes, we're from the house of Eli, please pray for us. And he said, go and give tzedakah and you will, you will merit old age because it says the crown and glory of old age, uh, um, the crown of glory is old age, and it's found on the way of Tzedaka. So that is another way of overcoming this. Getting back to our story. Poor Shmuel. Vayishkav Shmuel at a boker. Pasik tetzvav. Vayiftach et altot beit Hashem. Vishmuel yarei mehagidet hamara al-Eli. They have to understand the way this is structured. Eli knows. Eli knows that he got a prophecy. So he can't really hide it from him, but he doesn't have a command to tell him, right? But he wakes up and he's like, well, it sounds like he, he was resting till the morning and he, he goes about his, you know, lady duties. He opens the doors and he's afraid to tell him. And he calls him and he says, Shmuel, my son, you understand that Eli is understanding that if Shmuel's not running and saying, guess what, Elia had this revelation and look where this and that is happening, and it is not a good prophecy. So he says, Shmuel, my son, what is the thing, the word that he said to you? Don't keep it back from me. 
כה יעשה לך אלוקים וכה יוסיף אם תככב ממני דבר מכל דבר שדיבר אליך. Thus and thus will God do to you and thus more if you keep back one thing from everything he told you. I want to know it all. I want to know everything. Now if you notice Pasuk Yisayin is very strong. Davar, Diber, Davar, Davar, Diber. Five times the language of Davar, Diber. And what was the prophecy? God says, right? Enochio said, Davar, tell me everything. Don't hide it from me. Shmuel tells him everything, and he doesn't hold back. And Eli answers with this unbelievable answer. He is Hashem. He will do what is good in his eyes. Well, let's just try to understand that, that answer because it's very, very heavy. So on the one hand, you see a tremendous tragedy here that he, is, this is called Siduk Hadim, justifying the judgment, saying, okay, I accept it, justify it. On the one hand, it is greatness. It's godless. It's, it's a person who is able to say, I will accept what you do, God. That's, this is God, you do what's good in your eyes. And on the other hand, it, it sort of brings me back to his not dealing. Like, what, is there, some, is there no way that you could try to, to work with this, to, to, to fix this, no reaction? How does he, you know, just leave it at that? And it's very, it's very, very sad, right? And it's another sad thing that we have here, and that is, I think, this piece. Here. Okay. Amar of Yehuda, Amar Rav, Kilat Hacham Afilu Bechinam Hiba. Let's skip this bit. Amar Rav, Abahu, Amar Rav Abahu, Kilat Hacham Afilu Otsna Hiba. Minalan me Eli, the Kamar Eli Shmuel. Koya Salafalukim, Koyo Sip, Im Sahahed Medavar, Afagab, Zikti, Bayagel Shmuel, Kaladrem, Maloki Hedi Menu, Afo Pihata, Tiv Lohokhubanabidrahab. A very, very sad PS, and it's something we have to really take to heart. The Gemara says a wise person, a great person, even if he, sit, if he curses someone on a conditional curse, it's going to come true. We learned this from Ailey. Because what does Ailey say? Thus and thus will God do to you if you don't tell me. And he tells him. Nevertheless, right? That same curse that he doesn't have sons that are worthy, that happens to Shmuel. Also in chapter 8, we'll find out about Shmuel's sons. That they also did not live up to what Shmuel, what Shmuel was. 
like the sons of Eli didn't live up to. So what do we learn from that very, very sad comment of the Chazal? You know, it says in the Mishnah, in Avos, wise men, watch what you say. Never, ever curse anybody, even conditionally. Never call down bad on anybody, even conditionally. Your words have power. The greater you are, the greater the power of your words. People don't realize the power of their words. So be careful what you say. So let's wrap this up. Out of time. Pasuk Shmuel, Hashem Hayaimo. And Shmuel grew up, and God was with him. And he didn't let fall all of his things to the ground. Now notice by Yigdal Shmuel, there's no more Na'ar. He was already a full-fledged grown-up. The Shmuel is never going to be called a Na'ar again. Hashem is with him. And everything he says comes true. It didn't fall to the ground. Nothing he said, and there's a number of interpretations. First of all, this is how it says in the Chumash, how can you tell a true prophet? Whatever he says comes true. That's how you know a true prophet. But also, right, even if it wasn't prophecy, he stuck to what he said. He was a man of truth. The Medrash says, even after he, he was Artsa, even after he died, right, when in, in chapter 28, Shaul calls up the ghost of Shmuel, and even then what he says comes true. Pasikha. From Dan all the way in the northeast to Beersheba, that was basically the borders of Israel at that time. Everybody knew that Shmuel was a faithful um, prophet of God. If you connect again, who else is called Naaman? Moshe Rabbeinu, Bechol Beiti Naaman. He's the one I count on. Another similarity between Shmuel and Moshe. And if you say it in, uh, in uh, Tehillim 99, you say it in, um, in Kabbalah Shabbos, right? Moshe Ba'aron Bekorah Bishmuel Bekorah Shmuel. Shmuel is up there with Moshe and Aaron. He's a very, very great person. Everybody knew that he, whatever he said, came true. Pasuk Havalah. By Yosef Hashem Lahera O Bishilo, Ki Nigla Hashem Oshmuel Bishilo Bidvar Hashem. This is a fascinating pasuk. And Hashem continued to appear in Shiloh because he had revealed himself to Shmuel in Shiloh with the word of God. In other words, we've come full circle. At the beginning of the parak, we're told that the word of God is rare and precious. And now you remember we described it like water. When the word of God comes to Shmuel with such power and such strength that it spreads out, and now Nebuah comes back. And Nebuah was held up during the whole period of the judges. It was very rare. We see Deborah, we see Eli, Elkanah, Chana. Very, very rare. And now you're going to see throughout Saber Shmuel how everyone's trying to become prophets. People cling to Shmuel and try to learn from him and try to absorb it from him, the word of God has come back. And this is the, the amazing and beautiful uh, takeaway from this, from this story. <clears throat> so we have the, you know, the full circle, the prophecy, all the greatness, and now we see that a person is coming 
on the scene, who's going to be that great, great leader, who's going to pull together, pull the Jewish people out of their spiritual decline and bring them back up to a, a great place. Okay, I think I'm going to stop this screen share. Let me just think. Um, another lesson we learned from there is that um, your own, the same thing I said that, you know, you watch what you say, your words have power, your spirituality has power. So the more you raise yourself, the more you raise the people around you. And we learned this also from Elkanah, from Shmuel's father. As he went to Shiloh and he brought more and more people, and he began really the religious revival that Shmuel is going to complete. Okay, I'm going to stop the screen share. Um, okay, anybody have questions? I just keep talking and talking, and I wonder if anyone has questions. You can all unmute yourselves and just say hello. Questions? Hi. 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 I have a question. Why is it that it seems like... Really? Yes. Why is it that it seems like men in great positions don't have such refined children? And it so seems to be a pattern. His surrogate son, his surrogate son is the great one, not his genetic son. It's actually, it actually is a pattern. It is a pattern. It's not entirely true because you have an Avram Yitzhak Yaakov, but you also have, you know, Yishmael and Esau. Right. You have you have David. David had um, some very big problems with his children, and one of the children we don't hear anything about is a man called Kilav, who right. was a very very great person, and he just quietly did great things and was a big tzaddik. So the ones that we hear about are the ones that we have to learn from. Moshe Rabbeinu also had disappointments. You know, Aaron had disappointments, but his children were great. It seems to me, in a, in a short answer, having thought about this um, a lot, like what, what is the Torah trying to tell us, right? There is a danger in, in a, having a position of leadership that you're going to disconnect a little bit from your own children. And that's a danger to be watched out for. In the case of Ailey, it seems to me that Ailey, Ailey did not take the proper steps. Ailey should have put a stop to it. And there was a certain favoritism there. You, know, you have to recognize, you know, if your children are doing something wrong, that you can't, you know, you, you may not be able to do anything about it, but you, you really have to uh, in the case of Ailey, he was able to do something about it. And this is why he's criticized. This is why he, he's part of the, the punishment. The punishment happens through him because he himself could have put a stop to it. And he, hmm. that's really the problem. And there's no understanding why he didn't because he seemed so devoted in a way. Yeah, and it's, I think that, I think, you know, just looking at his career and his interactions with Hannah, let's say, with Shmuel, with his sons, that there's something a little bit, I don't know, there's something that doesn't connect on a real level. When 
can you look at a Hana who's, you know, tzibrachin, bitter, crying, and you look at her and say, oh, she's drunk. It argues to me a certain disconnect from what other people are feeling. The fact that his sons are making so much problems and, you know, he comes along and oh, people are saying not nice things about you without really getting to the root of the problem and actually saying to them, you know, this has to stop, right? I feel like that's today's world, though. Am I not mistaken? I feel like I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to, like, um, like, jump on, like, a like a critical horse. I don't, I don't know how to communicate what I'm trying to say. I'm not, like, trying to, like, be an angry woman, but I just feel like in the religious world to date, it seems like there's a big dis- like there's a disconnect with understanding like feminine spirituality and kind of putting it down. And at the same time, there's so there's so much politics and religion. Like there are so many things that are happening that are co- totally not kashir and like no one's saying anything. And it just feels to me when you were going over that, that it just feels like we're in the same situation. I don't know if anyone else feels that way, but that's how it felt to me. I'm, I'm not sure are you referring to specific things or just to a general feeling. I'm, I'm referring to specific things without going into them. But like, for example, like the fact that like it's so hard for a woman to get a get and that she could go so long without like 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 having like the court system go against the woman and and uh, and like um, and give up on the things that are in her tuba, let's just say, just so that her husband will give her her get, as an example. Like there are certain things that are just not being done properly, and no one's saying anything about it. This is just an example that's coming off the top of my head. The truth of the matter is that you know there are organizations trying to work on that. It's a it's a. Um... It's a very, very serious and uh, grave issue. And um, what, what, what we have here, I think, is not a lack of understanding of the problem. I think it's, it's a lack of um, leadership that's willing to take it on. Jewish right. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like he was the leader. He was supposed to take on these issues. And you take a strong stand. You have to have what they call Yiddish plates. Plates and shoulders. You have to have broad shoulders. In other words, that when the attacks come at you from all the different, you know, interest groups, you have to be able to say, you know, I decide this and that's it. But most of the spiritual leadership today is afraid to take strong stands on controversial issues because they're afraid of the backlash. It's very, very. Um, problematic you you need you need real gvura real and and i think that actually ailey would be a good example of that like he's just and these are his own children and he's afraid to take them on and say guys this has to stop you know the buck the buck stops here we say in the states that's it that's it you know i'm i'm in charge here and you guys are done and he's afraid to do that he won't do that he's blinded one of the things that the, the Torah does in physical blindness very often is a metaphor for moral blindness. The people that we see in the Tanakh that are blind are not seeing something. And I think it's very true here of Eli. 
He's definitely got a moral blindness. He doesn't see what's like, this is just completely out of hand. And, you know, they're going to come down. They're going to bring the whole Jewish people down with them. This is not, you know, a minor situation. It's just him and his children. It doesn't affect anyone else. It affects the whole nation. But he's got that lack of clarity. And he's a person with great spirituality. And a person like Shmuel is like a one, a one in a generation. Like, wh where do you have that kind of leadership? And we have had amazing leaders over the years and, and over the, you know, the last years. But, you know, the issues that you're talking about, you know, those issues, we need people to take them on. They're not, you know, some people are, and they're getting the backlash, but um, hopefully these things will be addressed. It's really a problem, really a problem. But I think that one of the things we learned from the Navi is you know this is this is the real world this is how people really are you know people are blind when it comes to their kids you know i learned this lesson when i was very young i'll tell you a funny story um there was a, a boy who was bothering us girls and my friends we were like nine or ten years old and we went to complain to the parents and this boy was a benzakunin he was like the youngest like a lot of much older siblings and you know, his sister answered the door and he said, no, he did this, he did this, he pushed her and this and that. And she said, oh yeah, you know, like she like, not surprised because he was like a real mischievous type of boy, very wild. And she said, I'll tell my mother. And along comes the mother, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget this. And she stood there and we said, you know, he did this, he did this. She said, my son would never do that. Slam the door in our faces. <laughs> I took that away and I never forgot it because to me it meant, you know, on the one hand, like it's really nice to stick up for your kid. On the other hand, is your head is in the ground, lady. Your son is a troublemaker and he bothers everybody. He couldn't see it. Her kid saw it. And I said, you know what? There's such a thing as like not seeing your kids in reality, right? I'm not saying, like, I, you know, I believe in sticking up for your kids. Believe me. My kids, I stick up for you. But um, there's, there's a blindness there that's really sad, really sad. And when it affects their public duties, and I think that that's one of the things that we're learning here. They were a walking hill Hashem. Hashem said, well, you know, if you want your kids to misbehave in a private sphere, that's fine. But when they're, when they're, misbehavior affects the whole situation, the whole nation. They're putting people off from coming to Shiloh and they're disrespecting, you know, the, the Jewish religion. It has to be, you know, punished severely, which it was. Sad story, sad story. And uh, I, I think a lot of these stories, Dove and Amela also, him and his kids, disaster, disaster. How does this happen? And one thing I can tell you, we get a clue in the beginning of Malachim, when Adoniyahu starts up. Okay, so he's already had Amnon mess up. He's had Abshol mess up. And then along comes Adoniyahu, right? And it says there very clearly, Sita. What was the problem with Adoniyahu? He was very good looking, right? He was next in line age-wise for the kingship. 
and his father had never made him sad, saying, why did you do that? Now, what does that mean? I don't understand. In other words, the Pasuk still tells us, beginning of Malachim Aleph, that what was the problem with Adoniyahu? It, no one ever told him, why did you do that? Which is a very mm -hmm. mild reprimand. Why did you do that? That's pretty mild. His father never let him be sad. His father never told him, why did you do that? And I think it's a big mistake in parenting. Parents think. Parents think their job is to make their children happy. It's not. It's not. Your job is to make your children into mention, to make them independent human beings who do the right thing. Your job is not to make your kids happy. Mm. Very, very big problem. Oh my gosh, if the kid cries, it's not the end of the world. So we're being told this in the Navi. Don't treat your kids happy as more important anything else because you're just going to get spoiled entitled and messed up you know situations it's a problem the problem very common today never told him why did you do that to one of these things how did Ailey this very very great Sadiq how did he get sons who would do these things it's hard to understand and of course the Gavara says they didn't really do what it says but still Sad stories. Sad stories, but we're supposed to learn something from them. We're supposed to say, okay, right? We have to do everything we can to make sure that our kids are becoming, you know, mentioned, being good people and doing the right thing. And then we have to, you know, pay attention to what, what's in our control, what we can you know, deal with.